Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. He's the former member of Fort McMurray-Conklin and the current member-elect for Fort McMurray-Laklavish. I would like him to rise. Welcome, Brian Jean, to the Assembly. Yeah, that was today at the Alberta Legislature. The Speaker, Nathan Cooper, introducing UCP MLA-elect Brian Jean. He's not yet been sworn in, but was at the Alberta Legislature today. The Premier was not, by the way. I probably didn't think that Jason Kenney would have been among those applauding anyway, uh, but he was not there. Anyway, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge uh, with you here on this Thursday afternoon in what is a really weird and almost unprecedented period in Alberta politics. I mean, certainly over the last decade, we've had uh, periods of drama and premiers who have won elections and not made it to the next election. That could be happening again. But the, the level of, of infighting and, and almost mutiny within the governing party is not something we're, we're used to seeing. So Brian Jean prevailed in that by-election of Fort McMurray-Laclabish. I think everyone expected that he would on Tuesday night. And obviously, Brian Jean has made it clear that uh, he's coming back to Alberta politics with the goal of pushing Jason Kenney out in mind. Now, further to that, Brian Jean would like to then replace Jason Kenney, but one thing at a time here. April 9th is a key date in Alberta politics. Whether or not you're a member of the UCP, what happens on April 9th is going to affect all of us. And I think it's an open question at this point as to whether Jason Kenney can survive this leadership review. And for that matter, whether the party can survive going forward, regardless of the outcome on April 9th. What is the the losing side going to do? How likely is it that that, uh, there can be any kind of reconciliation here amongst uh, UCP members? So... Uh, joining us to talk about what's already been an interesting week and um, bound to have a few more of those uh, in the weeks ahead. Very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, Lauren Gunter, columnist for the Edmonton Sun, edmontonsun.com, Post Media. Lauren, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks. So first of all, uh, your thoughts on the by-election. Not a surprise that Brian Jean won. Um, you know, interesting that the NDP did really poorly. But first of all, what did you make of the results? Well, yeah, I'm not entirely surprised the NDP did Poorly, uh, you know, the NDP is often a protest vote outside of Edmonton, yeah. and there was another party to register your protest vote with in this one, which is the Wild Rose Independence Party, right. and uh, Paul Hinman did reasonably well. I mean, he did double-digit voting. He was only a few percentage points behind the NDP candidate, so mm-hmm. uh, I think that's why. I think what you see there is between NDP and WIP, you have the protest against the UCP. So, uh, yeah, so I was fascinated. But turnout was on the low side, even for a by-election, which Mm -hmm. makes me wonder whether or not um, the... uh, um, makes me wonder whether or not this really was a vote endorsing Brian Jean's campaign to get rid of Jason Kenney. He's claimed that several times since he won 
the by-election, but but I'm not entirely sure that that uh, unless there was this uh, much bigger turnout for the by-election that this was anything more than a regular by-election. Brian Jean's a popular politician from the Fort McMurray area, well-known business person, yeah. and uh, uh, and he got you know a good-sized chunk of a small vote. I mean, it's it's an interesting question whether it needed to get to this point. So, you know whether. Layla Goodridge, uh, you know, could have been convinced to, to stay in provincial politics, whether yep. Brian Jean could have been uh, kept at bay in some other way. But look, even if Brian Jean had not reentered politics, you know, that, that he's not the sole cause of Jason Kenney's problems right now, is he? Oh, heavens, no. No, no not at all. Uh, I mean, and, and, and I think Jason is part of his own problem. Uh, uh, he has throughout the pandemic, I think, squirreled himself away in his office too much trying to become an expert on the pandemic rather than listening to his experts and being the the face of uh, the government's response and so when you do that you then allow allow an awful lot of of uh, people to fill in the blanks well why isn't kenny around uh, is you know it if they're they're arresting pastors and they're bringing in vaccine passports and and they're mask mandating um, it, what are the nefarious explanations for that? And if you're not out explaining those things to people regularly, again and again and again, then uh, the worst is going to be thought of it. And so I think I think he's missed a huge opportunity to uh, to be the the leader of Alberta during the pandemic, rather than uh, the leader of the scientific response to the pandemic. Yeah, that's an interesting point, because I think a lot of people are scratching their heads and, you know, the restrictions are gone. And yet yep. there's been no real noticeable boost or, or bump for Jason Kenney that maybe there is still some lingering bitterness or frustration or, or just, you know, some, some well, folks aren't able to get past some of that. Yeah, in, in the column that I wrote on this Tuesday night that appeared yesterday in print, uh, I, I did have polls, uh, poll results from, from Janet Brown, the pollster, Alberta-based pollster, who uh, all of the parties subscribed to her results. And, yeah, and she's good. They've been very, very effective, very, very accurate in many cases. Um, and, and, that, uh, and she shows the uh, UCP up 10 points, 11 points since November, and the, uh, the NDP down 7 points, so that now the UCP are, are once again... Uh, in the lead in her polls, uh, Kenny is still well behind Rachel Notley in personal popularity, but he's not as much of a drag on his own party as he he was through much of the pandemic. So, interesting whether or not that gets out because one of Brian Jean's principal reasons for wanting Kenny ousted is that he thinks the uh, the UCP cannot win. Uh, the next election, that the NDP will win the next election if Kenny's the leader. Uh, and these these results tend to show that's not true. In fact, the, the Brown poll results show the UCP now 20 points ahead of the NDP outside Edmonton and Calgary. Tied in Calgary, well behind the NDP in Edmonton, always will be well behind sure. the NDP in Edmonton. But, uh, but further ahead of the NDP, then the NDP are ahead of them in Edmonton. So you look outside of Edmonton and Calgary, and the the, the gap is very large now, UCP over NDP. So, so as we look ahead to, to April 9th, and 
mm-hmm. where where the momentum is or where the enthusiasm is for those that are inclined to buy membership, drive to Red Deer, go to, to this vote. I, I don't know. To me, it feels like this is really up in the air. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, heading yeah into you know, I, I'm having real trouble getting a, a strong gut feeling on this. And, and when you start to analyze it, exactly what you've said. You know, it's, it's a six-hour drive to Red Deer from Fort McMurray. It's a just about six hours from Grand Prairie, four from Medicine Hat, four from, or three from Lethbridge, even an hour and a half from Edmonton and Calgary each. And and so that means you have to be motivated in order to drive there and back in a day. And with seven or 8,000 people registered to vote, uh, probably stand in line for a very long time in order to get your ballot and cast it. And... I think right now the people who are more motivated to do that, the, the enthusiasm gap favors the anti-Kenny side. Uh, you know, if you, I don't, I don't sense an awful lot of strong, yeah, we got to keep Jason, he's great, we love him, uh, momentum in the party. There is certainly lots of support for him, but it is not as committed, I think, as the uh, let's get rid of him group. And, and so that, it, that plays against the the premier keeping his job as a very night. But like you, I don't have, I can't grasp where I think this is going to go. Yeah, that's the thing. I think you're right about the the momentum. I just, it's really hard for me to to ever write off Jason Kenny for someone who has achieved as much as he has in politics. Yep. I, I don't think you can ever count somebody like that out. Maybe that that's affecting my assessment of it. Well, and you know, he is he's incredibly effective in small groups. And that's what he has been doing for the last two weeks, and what I'm imagining he'll be spending the next three weeks doing, is going around and meeting with uh, as many small groups as he can. I remember one time interviewing him after the 2015 federal election, and that was the one that the Trudeau defeated Harper. And he sort of shook his head about when, when the subject of Harper came up, because in a 73-day campaign, uh, Harper had made about 150 or 160 campaign appearances, and Kenny, on behalf of the party, not behalf of, on behalf of himself in his Calgary riding, but across the country on behalf of the Conservative Party, Kenny had made 660. And so he's really very good at, at you know, he comes in 15, 20 minutes with a small group, moves on to another place, another another group, and that's what he's doing now. So maybe that will work to his advantage. What do you make of some of these wild sort of speculations out there, like, you know, that he's going to resign and, and run in a leadership race, or, you know, maybe we even get a snap election? Do you think there's any possibility of some of those more wild scenarios? Uh, well, I, you know, it, it, I think if he he decided to call a snap election, uh, that would be entirely self-serving, and it would end up the way that Jim Prentice ended up when he okay. called an election too early. Uh, in 2015, and the NDP won a surprise majority. Uh, I think voters would there be a voter backlash against that. So I I don't think we're going to see that. We're not scheduled for another election until next year, and and I I just don't I, I don't see anything other than self service in in calling an election now because if indeed now that the pandemic restrictions are lifting and Albertans are getting back to their normal semi normal lives and the economy is improving. Uh, it would be to the party, the UCP's party interests, to wait a year. You know, another year of high oil prices and more employment and more profits and better budget 
numbers can only help them in the election. And will there be a UCP as we know it heading into that election? I mean, regardless of whether it's a, a tight vote in Kenny's favor, a tight vote against him, you know, this this is a divided party, and I don't see the losing side necessarily being you know gracious losers after no. after April 9th, right? I mean, no, how, I, how do you bring I, this party back together? I don't know. I mean, can you can you remember the last time that that a member of the sitting party? was elected in a by-election with the express purpose of going in no. to get rid of the no. leader. Like, and I can't. So yeah. these are these are big, big fractures, you know, fractures between the ante and pro-Kenny side. And I think there'll be an awful lot of reconciliation, but I can see uh, several MPs, or sorry, MLAs, deciding that they're going to break away and call themselves Wild Rose or Wild Rose Independence or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, April 9th isn't the end of this. No. You're right about that. Well, your latest is mentioned. It's up at edmontonsun.com. Lauren, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Hey, you bet, Rob. All the best. Uh, there's Lauren Gunter, columnist for the Edmonton Sun, Post Media, edmontonsun.com. You can read his latest. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, high drama in Alberta politics for sure. And obviously, look, you don't have to be a member of the UCP to be affected by this. This is the governing party. This is the premier of, of Alberta. And it's possible that a month from now, somebody else will be the premier of Alberta. Let's revisit what's been a wild story over the last few weeks, the price of oil. As we watch some of the benchmark prices, West Texas Intermediate, Brent, obviously we keep an eye on Western Canadian Select as well. But I tell you what, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. I mean, even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we were seeing a real surge in commodity prices uh, with a lack of supply, a surge in demand, and then obviously the Russian invasion just compounded all of that. And further to that, obviously, the bans on, on Russian energy project, uh, products. As of right now, West Texas Intermediate is trading just under $104 a barrel. We've seen that go as high as 120 We saw that dip back down into the 90s, even the low 90s this week. So to see it surge back up again, it's a bit of whiplash for those who are trying to follow all of this. Now, it's interesting, too, because here in Alberta, the premier recently announced, of course, that with oil prices as high as they are, we're going to take off that 13 cents a liter gasoline excise tax. And it'll stay off until we get down to $80 a barrel or under $80 a barrel. Kind of watching the last couple of days, you almost started to wonder whether we were marching in that direction before that tax cut even took effect. Uh, things have swung back on the upside here, but um, what's driving all of this beyond the obvious supply and demand situation, the, the situation in Ukraine? Well, somebody who's trying to follow all of this as best he can, along with everybody else. Rory Johnston, uh, market analyst, founder of Commodity Context. Uh, you can read more, by the way, commoditycontacts.substack.com. Uh, Rory, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a wild few days, it, it seems like, that uh, we saw oil surging, you know, to $120 a barrel, and it felt like it was just going to keep going higher, and then all of a sudden, does this big U-turn? Let's start with the U-turn. Why did we start seeing prices come down so dramatically? Yeah, so I think it's really interesting. I mean, what we're at right now is a time where we have a lot of really, really big factors moving around. We're talking about millions of barrels a day, or like, you know, 2 to 3% in either direction of global balances, 
are kind of unknown right now, which is very rare in the market. The oil market typically moves pretty slowly, and you typically kind of have a decent amount of warning and forward guidance as to what's happening. So you can kind of anticipate it. But what we're seeing right now with Russia and Ukraine was so initially the reason prices obviously went up was that we were worried that we were going to lose probably in the ballpark of somewhere upwards of 3 million barrels a day or 3% of global supply uh, because of the self-sanctioning again, you know, and, and the worry about kind of getting entangled with Russian crude. But what's interesting is that is that it really only started in terms of purchases. So it still took weeks and weeks, and we still really haven't seen an actual fall off in Russian exports yet. So as everyone was kind of waiting for this real impact to hit the oil market on the physical side, well, you know, what started happening, particularly in Asia and in China, was you had this, you know, as you were discussing, this massive new wave and, and sub-variant of, of Omicron kind of spiking up, particularly in Hong Kong. The numbers are extremely uh, kind of uh, worrying, and we've seen large lockdowns again. So, you know, we had this big you know, anticipatory shock on the supply side. And then we had, you know, as we were waiting for it to come to fruition, this big demand shock hit at the same time. So we saw it all dump off and we saw a lot of speculators take their positions out of the market, partly because of the volatility, partly because prices were high enough that they had made a lot of money in the first place. So those prices came back down. And now I think, you know, we really overdid it. It was pretty crazy to me that in the span of three, two and a half weeks, basically, we went up almost $50 a barrel from, from before Russia invading Ukraine, back down a full kind of round trip in two and a half weeks. And, and, you know, we're still in a state where the third largest oil producer in the world is effectively becoming a global pariah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the situation in China is going to be interesting because, as you say, I mean, you know, they've they've gone with a COVID zero strategy that has worked fairly well up until recently. And they're getting hit pretty hard right now. There's some key industrial cities in in China that that are basically in lockdown. That's going to have some supply chain issues uh, as well, I think, globally. But if we start to see a slowdown in China, that's going to have consequences on commodity prices, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and if, we, if we use, I mean, our most readily available parallel for a worst case scenario was the initial COVID lockdown shock that initially put right. you know, oil prices into a negative tailspin. Uh, in, that, in that initial shutdown, China lost about 3 million barrels a day of demand for about a month or two, which is, you know, ironically, in this case, exactly what we might be losing on the Russian side. So you have these two almost equivalently sized massive shocks hitting the market at the same time. And there's a lot of uncertainty around where either one is going to go, because even 10 or 20 percent on either side of that are pretty big moves in the oil market, particularly when we're so tight. So I think what you saw was initially people thought the upside was overdone. So they sold it back down, overdid the downside selling. And now they're kind of, you know, coming back to it and and kind of coming back into the market as we potentially start to see those Russian physical barrel losses finally hit the market. Well, what about the OPEC factor here, too? And I mean, I, I think maybe the markets were looking at whether OPEC was going to start increasing production. It looks as though OPEC basically going to hold the line. They don't see their demand growth forecast changing through 2022. Has How much of an impact has that had? I, I definitely think there was initially some concern from the market that we see uh, kind of a, a faster response from OPEC. They have very clearly said that they will not respond to what they see as a geopolitical price shock, that they're only going to respond to physical losses. But I think actually even more troubling from a kind of a market stability perspective on the OPEC side is that 
you know, you have to consider the fact that Saudi Arabia, for most of its history, has been the definitive price dove within OPEC. It wants reasonable, stable, low-ish prices relative to the other members, still high in the scheme of things, but lowish relative to, you know, Libya or Iraq. Um, and that's because they're in it for the very, very long game. So what I found very surprising was even as Brent prices briefly touched $139 a barrel when they opened uh, on the Monday kind of following the invasion, um, that we really didn't see any any statement or attempt to you know consult you know to console the market from Saudi Arabia, which to me actually speaks to a much broader shift in Saudi policy that I think is just going to contribute to further volatility here rather than their traditional role of stabilizer. Well, and, and we've seen a more aggressive Saudi Arabia in the past, as folks in Alberta know full well, that maybe they see uh, you know a, an advantage, a competitive advantage for themselves if, if prices are, are lower, but. Are, are they are they content for now with prices where they are? Do you think? I think they're content from a perspective of you know covering their their fiscal balances. But I would say that historically you would have you would have wanted Saudi Arabia would have wanted to stabilize the market. You know even more so than any particular price level. What they really didn't like was volatility because consumers don't like volatility, and that kind of prompts demand switching. So they wanted oil to seem safe, seem approachable, and seem reliable. Uh, and that's why I find this so actually confusing. I think if you rewind even three, four months ago, I was completely on the side of kind of Saudi Arabia's position that we shouldn't increase production now to offset oil when it was in the 90s because we need those price signals to bring shale, U.S. shale production on. But after we were hitting, you know, the 130s for Brent, I think we were clearly in crisis territory. And the, that would have been at a time when the market really needed some kind of consoling that, there, you know, there was a steady hand on the tiller. And that's what we didn't get. So I think the market's trying to figure out what's going on right here. And you have, again, you have all of the biggest factors. You have the biggest importer in China. You have the third largest producer in Russia. And you have Saudi policy that's in question now. And U.S. is this big question mark in shale response. All the biggest factors of the oil market are big question marks. And it's really disconcerting to markets, which is why you're seeing such strong volatility as you try and price in every new piece of headline that comes across the wire. Yeah, I know. That's the thing. I mean, maybe it, it almost seemed like 120 or 130 was artificially high. We're going to settle in somewhere, you know, around $90 a barrel. You got some voices out there saying, no, no, we're, we're going to keep going higher. Some even suggesting that the $200 a barrel could be realized. So I, I guess it just speaks to all of that uncertainty. You got these different different kind of forecasts or predictions out there. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm actually personally like I, I'm usually relatively moderate, moderate in my outlook. And I but I really do think that when you move to a potential that you see Russia lose millions of barrels a day in near-term exports and longer term uh, in terms of production capacity, because once they stop exporting, uh, you, you know, you can only build that up in inventories for so long before you need to start shutting wells. And as people in Alberta well know, once you, you know, it's not easy to shut a well and restart it. It's not just a, you know, flipping a switch. So I think, you know, the supply situation is structurally weakened. I think, if anything, what, what we could be seeing with the China demand shock is almost a temporary and kind of illusory sense of, of kind of safety in the market. Because, you know, like we saw with all of the COVID shocks, they're not permanent. They are transitory by nature. And once China comes out of lockdown, their demand is going to come screaming back up. And you're just going to have more months where, where that supply demand balance is going to become dislocated, but without the price signal over those months to hopefully get something like U.S. shale growing. So I think it, you know, it, you know, it, it's a near-term bearish factor, you know, no doubt. But I think in some ways it's actually a longer-term, even more bullish factor.
We'll see where it all goes from here. Much more analysis, the Commodity Context newsletter at commoditycontext.substack.com. Roy, appreciate the insight as always. Thanks for joining us here. Thanks, Rob. All right. All the best. Uh, that is uh, analyst Roy Johnston, founder of Commodity Contacts. Some thoughts from him on where things are going here on the price of oil. This is Afternoons on 770 CHQR. Rob Ridge with you. Much more to get to on the program here this afternoon. As we uh, have now officially passed the two-year anniversary of the start of this pandemic, or the declaration of this pandemic, we enter the third year of this. Is the worst behind us? Yes, maybe, hopefully. Uh, the finish line of this pandemic is, is really hard to see or to even know what that, that looks like at this point. Obviously, we're coming off a, a pretty massive uh, Omicron wave. But it's important to note that, that Omicron is almost kind of like a, a two or three headed monster here. Uh, so we can break it down. Uh, basically, BA1 and BA2 are the ones to be worried about. There was was a third, and they all kind of emerged around the same time. For whatever reason, BA1 took off, took over the globe, essentially. Hit us here, hit us here hard. Now, we've been coming out of that wave, unfortunately starting to see hospitalizations uh, trending down yesterday, finally back below 1,000. I think about 70 in ICU, so those numbers have been going in the right direction. But Omicron may not yet be done with us just yet. And as we've been seeing in some other countries, including in Europe, uh, there's been an increase in cases, partly due to this BA2, which forever, for whatever reason, was slower to get going, but really seems to be taking off and does appear to be more contagious than, than its cousin or its sister BA1. So what does that mean for us? I don't think anyone's expecting we're going to see a wave similar to what we just saw, but it could prolong this current wave. Maybe we do see a, a bit of a bump in cases or hospitalizations. But joining us to talk about kind of what we know about this subvariant and, and what the concern is, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, infectious disease uh, expert Dr. Lorna, uh, Lenora Saxinger, the Department of Medicine at the University of Alberta. Dr. Saxinger, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me again. It's funny that, that some are still referring to this as the stealth variant of Omicron, which sounds really ominous and dramatic, but I, I, I don't know. Does that name even really make sense anymore? Not to me. I mean, it never really. I mean, they're all kind of stealthy. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and um, the, the BA2 variant is emerging because it is somewhat more transmissible than BA1. Uh, we don't really know that much regarding other biological differences that are obvious at this point, but because it's more transmissible where they're circulating COVID, it will displace the other variants and it will become the dominant variant. And so yeah. I think every place that has it is on track for that to happen. Right, and so we should expect that to happen here. And I, I don't know if it's yet, maybe we're close to it, sort of passing the 50% tipping point, but it's probably only a matter of time. Exactly, yes. So when we look at the differences, I, I mean, obviously, you know, there there's some mutations that are different. This is still within the Omicron family, I guess we could call it. But um, what, what are the, the differences as we understand it? Well, I mean, the the current data for BA2 um, is is pretty consistent that it does transmit more e easily. So, you know, in multiple data sets where they have data on household transmission, which is, you know, a really high risk situation if someone in the household has it, the transmission rate within households is higher than for BA1. There hasn't been any suggestion so far that it is, you know, more or less severe or clinically all that much different than Omicron BA1. 
And I, I think one thing that has gotten a bit bent out of shape in the entire Omicron discussion is this notion of whether or not Omicron is severe or not. And, and I think people have to recognize that the severity question really depends on the population because it's still SARS-CoV-2, it's still COVID-19, and the lesser severity of some of these variants that have come along later is, is really influenced by how many people have been immunized in a population. And so just someone who's never been exposed to it getting sick can still get very, very sick with Omicron BA1 or BA2. Yeah, I mean, Hong Kong's an example of that, where especially even amongst their elderly population, vaccination rates are still fairly low. You know, the, the, the fatality rate in Hong Kong is just off the charts right now. Oh, it's it's absolutely shocking, and it's essentially like a naive population. So this is not, you know, this is not necessarily cold. If you if you've been immunized, um, if you've been immunized combined with infected, or if you've been infected recently, your risk of severe disease is much less. But there are places right now that are seeing massive surges um, because either the vaccines they had in use were not as effective as the ones that we've had here. Um, their infection rates might have been very, very low, so there's not a lot of kind of immunity experience in the population, um, or they haven't had good vaccine uptake. And so that's really shaping what we're seeing around the world. It does seem like a bit of a mystery. I mean, you know, Omicron or the Omicron variant first emerged, as we best can understand, in, in November. Uh, but BA2 was around at the time then as well. If it's more contagious, logically then, you know, BA2 should have been the one that, that took off. But for whatever reason, BA1 did first. Now BA2 is sort of after the fact. Do we have any ideas to why? Uh, personally, I think I'd be speculating a lot to have a theory. But one thing that we think about about introduction is where something is introduced really does influence kind of the pattern. And in a way, um, even that scant amount of BA2 that's left over after the end of a BA1 wave um, will outcompete. Um, and, you know, the, the environment that you're in when it kind of takes seed, if that makes sense, does influence what, what kind of gets out of the gate first as well. So it is it is kind of it is seeming to be batting cleanup and causing havoc in the wake of BA1 um, in a lot of places. And I'm sure that there will be some places that will see a BA2 wave without having had a BA1 wave at this point. So for Alberta, and we obviously we had a pretty big uh, BA1 wave. Uh, a lot of people were infected, had a lot of breakthrough infections. A lot of Albertans get booster shots as well. So, I mean, what we know is that, you know, the booster shots work well against both, that having had exposure to BA1, those antibodies give protection against BA2. So how set up are we, do you think, to, to kind of fend off BA2 or, or prevent, a, you know, a, a big wave like we just saw? I think at the moment that, you know, the risk of having a big surge seems relatively low because there is a lot of population um, recent experience and there's actually pretty good vaccination rates in most places. So I don't think we'd see, you know, a Hong Kong or China level situation at all. I, I think what we might see, though, with it being more transmissible is is the phenomenon we have right now where it seems like Omicron is basically just finding everyone who's susceptible over mm-hmm. time, whether it's a short time or a long time. And then those who are susceptible to severe disease are getting severe disease and we're having this kind of a longer plateau in hospital where there's decreases. But, you know, the decrease in hospital is nowhere near as fast as the decrease of cases, um, right. kind of inferred cases in the community. And so this kind of long tail where we're still seeing people getting sick over the next while could actually be a little more aggressive and a little more prolonged because of BA2, I think. Well, and there's also the, the the timing question. I mean, obviously, one of the factors, it seems, in some of the countries is when you start to see some of the waning uh, of immunity. So 
I'm not sure what kind of a timeline that puts us on in Alberta when that would start to be an issue. Obviously, how long it takes to get through this wave. Maybe there's the question of, you know, whether May or June kind of saves us in the seasonality sense. So some of those factors could come into play, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, like so far, there hasn't been a lot. There's been like, you know, cases of BA2 super infection on BA1. But at the moment, everything we have, and we only have data up to right now, obviously, is that mm-hmm. reinfection is quite rare and severe reinfection would be especially rare. And the other data that we have is vaccine effectiveness data from the UK, where they've actually been able to start reporting on BA1 versus BA2. And the vaccine effectiveness looks very similar. And the vaccine effectiveness against severe disease for all Omicron is still maintained. The vaccine effectiveness against getting infected at all is not that great. So there's a fair amount of punching through with some infection right. um, in vaccinated persons, but but the likelihood of severe disease is still is still you know really much reduced by vaccination. The other thing that's been true is that the third dose does a lot of heavy lifting against Omicron. So if you haven't had your third dose, you're doing yourself a disservice because the hospitalization rate is you know four to eight times different between having had two doses and three doses. And so that message really has to get elevated to help us in this kind of interval period of uncertainty with BA1. I mean, BA2 starting to increase in the population relatively. Where does that hybrid immunity rank for you? I mean, obviously, you know, for those who have had a double dose and a breakthrough infection, they've been told to wait a little while before getting a booster dose. But is is that breakthrough infection, that hybrid immunity, is, is that on par, do you think? There's not a whole lot of data on that with Omicron in general and BA1 or 2 in specific. But, you know, to be honest, a combination of having had two doses and infection is pretty solid immunity. And um, the the available data on waning, if you consider infection kind of like a third dose, um, would would suggest that we're kind of okay for the moment for most people. I think we will be starting to look at that kind of four to six months after last exposure be it to vaccine or to infection very critically in terms of, you know, are we going to start seeing people getting sick at that point again? But it's an open question right now, and I don't think it's conclusive, and I don't think we should be using antibody data to make those decisions at the moment. I think we should be using, you know, kind of a little bit more real-world data because, of course, antibody levels drop. It really depends on what happens when you get exposed again. All right. Well, we'll leave it there and see what uh, unfolds in the, the weeks ahead here. But, um, you know, this this virus may not be done with us just yet, obviously. Dr. Saxinger, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you. All the best. Uh, infectious disease specialist, Dr. Lenore Saxinger, associate professor in the Department of Medicine, University of Alberta. So some thoughts from her on what this BA2 might represent. And so, look, I don't think we're going back. We're not rolling back, back the clock here to, you know, even what we saw in, in December when this wave really hit us. We're rolling back the clock even further to, to stretches of, um, you know, restrictions, et cetera. I, I don't think there's an appetite for that. I'm not even sure that there's a need for that. You're not really seeing that either in, in countries that are going through this. The exception might be, I mean, Scotland made a decision this week that they are going to end other restrictions, but they're going to keep the mask mandate in place for now in Scotland. And not everybody's in agreement on that. But all things considered, that's a pretty minimal intervention. Other countries are, are kind of riding this out. I mean, Denmark's been an interesting example where they got hammered with this uh, BA2 wave. But they went ahead with their decision anyway. They look, we need to move past restrictions. And it looks like Denmark's now coming out of this this wave. So again, it's it's something we're likely to see here at some point once this becomes dominant, maybe cases plateau, maybe we start to th- see things go up a bit. So just, you know, to know that that, that could be a possibility, maybe is even likely in, in the coming days or weeks here. Look, I can tell you this, if you're of the opinion that maybe we do need to do more 
or maybe the Alberta government shouldn't have got rid of all of the restrictions. Uh, politically, there is a zero chance, a zero chance that this premier is going to do anything of the sort between now and April 9th. Maybe you're, you're good with that. Maybe you're not. It's all a moot point. That's a big factor here. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.